One of the best-known passages of the Bible begins in this way. If you know the song by the birds, you could sing along if you'd like. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Well, since the beginning of February, when we started our study in Amos, we have mostly heard about God's judgment against the nations, especially the northern kingdom of Israel. We learn that God will break up Israel for their rebellion, first through an earthquake, then through the aftershock when the Assyrian army will come in and take Israel into exile. The judgment of God will break down the northern kingdom, never to be restored again. And for the last time in this series, we're going to be looking at that breakdown again in this vision of judgment. But as we heard in the last verses, judgment is not the final word of this book, but a word of hope. The final verses of Amos are actually the blueprints of the world's greatest rebuilding project that continues to this very day. And what we're going to see is that the materials that God uses for this rebuilding project are not what we expect at all. A time to break down and a time to build up. That's the outline for our sermon this morning. A time to break down. In the past, visions of judgment God gave Amos object lessons, a swarm of locusts eating up the crops, a a fire devouring a field. Last week we saw that it was a summer fruit basket that was so ripe it was basically rotten. And God is now done with object lessons. Chapter 9 begins with an unflinching command. God stands in the altar area where the temples are And he says to Israel, he commands the demolition team of angels, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. You see, after years of waiting patiently for his people, God's judgment begins, and it is waged in full scale. If the striking of the capitals or the shaking of the buildings doesn't bring down the people, the thrusts of the swords of the Assyrians will. There is nowhere to run and there is nowhere to hide anymore. The day of the Lord has come upon Israel. Now back in chapter 5, the people thought that the day of the Lord that they longed for would actually be a greater season of prosperity and goodness. But that day has finally come, and it's a day of doom. Nigerian pastor and Bible scholar Daniel Beatrice says this, There's an African saying that applies directly to God's people here. If you refuse to hear, you will not refuse to see. And that's exactly what happens here. The people don't listen to God, and with their own eyes, they see their temples come toppling down. They had to learn the hard way, unfortunately. They will try to hide, but God reminds His people He is the God who knows everything and sees everyone. There will be no place to escape. You know, when we are in a bit of trouble, 
one of the greatest comforts we can have as God's people is the confident knowledge that God is truly with us. In Psalm 139, we have these words, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in the grave, you are there. What greater strength could there be than for us to know that God is with us no matter what happens and no matter where we go? But for the people of Israel, the strength of God's presence will become the source of all their sorrows. Look at what God says in verse 2. If they dig into Sheol, the grave, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I shall bring them down. The presence of God will no longer be of comfort, but of torment. If the people think, maybe if I climb to the highest mountain of Carmel, there I'll be safe. Or if they say, I'll take my chances and dive into the deep chaotic sea and swim away. The highest place is barely a stretch for God's hand. And if they swim all the way to the bottom of the sea, God's judgment will strike them with the bite of a serpent. From the bottom of the sea to the summit of heaven, God's judgment will find his people. This is an anti-Psalm 139 in many ways. In our legal system, if there's a warrant out for someone's arrest, oftentimes defense attorneys counsel their clients to turn themselves in to avoid more problems down the road. And Israel tries this strategy to get off the hook. They think if they just go ahead into captivity, maybe God will spare them. Maybe they'll have less time for good behavior. But that's not going to work with God because their offenses deserve the most severe punishment. God says this in verse 4, If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. There is no celebrity treatment or special status in God's courtroom. If you were here with us last week, we saw that the people misused the Sabbath, and that's what got them in trouble with God. This week, we learned that they misused their, their status. They thought that all they had to do was wave their ID card, and they could get through God's judgments. After all, God chose them among all the nations of the world. But God stops them dead in their tracks, and He double-checks their ID cards, and he says to them, the special status you once enjoyed, you no longer have. He says to them in verse 7, shockingly, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? If God dwelt in a special way with his people in the land of Israel, then to the Israelite mind, the Cushites way down in Africa were the nation farthest in line from the front row seat from what God was doing. And God says, now the Cushites and the Israelites, they are the same to me. 
when Israel went after other gods and they neglected the poor, they forfeited their VIP status. But what about the fact that God liberated Israel from Egypt, brought them out of slavery and into the promised land? No other nation was protected like that. And Israel is dumbfounded yet again. God may be known as the God of Israel, but He is not limited to Israel. Yes, God did raise His people out of Egypt, but He also led the Philistines into their land from Kaftor, the island of Crete. These were Israel's enemies. These were Israel's neighbors. And God was overseeing their migration too. And God did the very same for the Syrian people. The people forgot that God is the God of all nations and not just theirs. What we see here is that the people of God are guilty of the sin of presumption. What is the sin of presumption? Let me give you an example from ordinary life, my ordinary life. This usually happens around Christmas time. A wonderfully thoughtful congregant bakes me a dessert and I come home and I put it down on the dining room table and walk away for a minute. And my precious children come and eat it all up before I even get around to it. And they presume that if it's sweet and it's on the table, it must be for them. I'm not bitter, I'm just saying. This is, this is presumption to the highest level. Now in certain contexts, Presumption can be endearing. In the case of my children, they know that I'm happy when they're happy, and they know I should probably eat fewer desserts, but presumption really can be deadly in a relationship. The person who's never thanked for their hard work around the house by their spouse, a roommate who borrows things all the time and never returns them, a co-worker you're covering for and they never seem to return the thank you or the favor. And presumption can be especially deadly in our relationship with God. We can think that just because we have devotional times or go to church or a Christian school, we serve in a ministry or or are active in the youth group, that somehow God owes us our best life now. That's what we presume And we may not say it aloud, but all it takes to expose this deeply held belief is when we experience a setback or failure along the way. We start to realize we're not loving God because He is God. We love God because of what He can do for us. Our loyalty to Him is contingent on how well He falls in line with what we think He should do. So when we don't get accepted into the school that we hope for, or the job we apply for doesn't work out, or that relationship comes to an end, or that healing doesn't come in the way that we hoped, more than a sting of disappointment, we give in to despair. Israel forgot, and we often forget, that God is God on God's terms.
Isaiah the prophet reminds us, His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Israel tried to put God in a straitjacket, and God was not cooperating. The late Catholic priest Henry Nouwen gets right at the root of the sin of presumption. He writes very simply, in the spiritual life, it's easier to be God than it is to love God. In the end, our expectations throw on God, that we throw on God, are really nothing more than our attempt to put Him in a box, to make Him support our agenda. Really what we're trying to do, we're trying to be God to God rather than love Him. One of the most difficult truths we can learn in the Christian life is that God does not always give us what we want, but He does give us what we need according to His will. God's commands can be difficult, but they are always good. If we were to take an honest inventory of our lives before God, we would often see that God is far more gracious and merciful than we give Him credit for. The end of Psalm 139, that great psalm of God's presence giving us comfort, ends like this with a sober prayer of realization. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, if it's true, that you are with me wherever I go. I realize that oftentimes not only do I need your comfort, but I need your correction because you see all the ways that I truly struggle. We may not say it, but rather than asking God to examine our hearts, we end up testing him. Like Israel, we're tempted to limit God to what we can ask or what we can imagine, and God is always doing more than we could ask or imagine. And what God does with Israel in this passage, Amos, shows us exactly that truth. You know, if a journalist were to go onto the scene of Israel's judgment and they were to see the wreckage they would see the loss of life. They would see the exile. It would look truly hopeless. But the story God is writing is much bigger than human imagination. Crisis, even ones that result in human sin in God's judgment, is no barrier to God's plans at all, nor to the future of His people. I remember reading one time that the Chinese word for crisis consists of two characters, one for danger and one for opportunity. I've now shared with you the limit of my understanding of the Chinese language. We often don't readily see it, but it's true. Crisis presents danger, but with it, a new beginning. Maybe not what we have hoped, but there is an opportunity for something new. When the job doesn't work out, it's an opportunity for something else to open up. Or when our health begins to fail, 
we begin to see the ways of God in our relationships to others in brand new ways. The danger of destruction, but also the opportunity to rebuild, is present in verse 8, where God says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There will be signs of life amidst the rubble. Even after God's judgment, there will remain a people of God after all. So how is God going to do this? You see what God does in verse 9 in the image of a sieve. A sieve, like the one in your kitchen, separates what you want to keep with what you want to discard. So in this passage, the people of God who will endure judgment, the ones whom God will spare, will pass through the sieve and will be set aside for safekeeping. But the chaff and the pebbles that remain in the basket that are no longer fit for use, God will discard to the side. The whole nation will be shaken in the sieve, Israel will be judged in its entirety, but nonetheless, a remnant of Israel will truly remain. There won't be much left, but still there will be some. And what God can build with such a small remnant, you won't believe. The time to tear down has passed, and the time to build up begins with God now. Look with me at verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. During King David's reign, God made a promise that someone from his line will always sit on the throne. He was the great king that united the kingdom of Israel north and south together. But in Amos' day, that kingdom was split up between a north, northern and southern kingdom. And with a couple of exceptions, there was no good king to rule them. Certainly none like King David, who was a man after God's own heart. You see, the kings after David downgraded the people of God from a strong and faithful kingdom to a nation of flimsy huts no longer resolute in their faith in God. They were under the influence of other gods and other nations. And the time came when both of these kingdoms fell for their sin against God. Israel, the northern kingdom that we've been hearing about Amos, is going to fall to Assyria. And Judah, the southern kingdom, to Babylon 130 years later. Though at times God's promises are hidden, they never fail. They never fall. They continue to endure. And listen to how the Apostle Paul shows us that the promise that God made to David is very much alive. This is from the opening verses to his letter to the Romans. He says this, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. 
In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Last week, we heard through the prophet Amos that Jesus Christ on the cross took our judgment against, of, of our sin to himself. And this week we learn that it is through the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead that King David, the true and better David, will, rise up, will raise up Israel again. He will rebuild them up. Amos, very interestingly, says that Edom, Israel's close neighbor, will be brought into God's people. And not only that, all the nations of the world will be part of God's people. You see, the kingship of Jesus Christ will make this small remnant of God's people into the greatest of nations. In Acts 15, the passage we heard earlier shows us exactly how God is going to do that. You see, after Peter, the Jewish disciple and apostle of Jesus, visits the Gentile Cornelius in his home, The Holy Spirit descends on Cornelius and the people there just as the Holy Spirit descended on the Jewish believers at Pentecost. These non-kosher, uncircumcised Gentiles, together with the Jewish believers, now live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Their past dividing ethnic differences were done away with because both Jewish people and all the nations of the people in the world have been called by the name of the same God, and that name is none other than Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles were to be integrated, not segregated. Evangelical author and professor John Frankie puts it this way, in the gospel, we learn that God comes to us as we are, and accepts us as such through the work of Christ, and not on the basis of what we have been, are, or trying to become. In Christ, we are accepted by God in the midst of all the relations, all the experiences, and all the cultural condition, conditioning that makes us who we are. In other words, Jesus even loves the Jersey accent. What Amos longed to see, the rebuilding of God's people, was unfolding right in front of the eyes of the apostles. I love what one theologian says about this. He says, Israel's life reveals that their God is also the God of the Gentiles. But the point of the revelation is not merely shared knowledge of God, but a shared life with God. The differences among people is not an inevitable impediment for relationship, but the very stage on which God will create a deeper and richer reality of communion with the divine life. In other words, ethnic and cultural differences do not distract or distance us from communion with God, it actually enhances our life together with God. A few weeks ago in the atrium, I was looking out 
and I saw one person assisting another friend in the congregation, and I happened to know both their stories. They were different ages, they spoke different primary languages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, but what they have in common is that the risen Lord Jesus Christ has broken into their lives and now He weaves their lives together. Like the apostles, we are continuing to see this great vision of Amos played out in front of our very eyes. But let's be honest, even in a multi-ethnic church, it's a lot easier to be with people who are like us, who are like ourselves, who look like us, who maybe speak the same language that we do, but not interacting with each other in our differences and not doing that, we risked to become spectators rather than active participants in God's building project that will span every culture. The truth is, our church is unique, and that when you look out on a Sunday morning across the sanctuary, you see people represented from all over the world. And on some Sundays, you can even hear God's Word read in other languages. And all this reminds us that, that Jesus Christ is truly Lord of every nation, that no language is privileged that no culture is preferred, that no people are to be left out. The fullness of our diversity reflects the beauty and varied wisdom of our great God. And this especially happens when we intentionally knit our lives together. But in the process of learning how to grow into this identity, in the process of learning how to knit our lives together, we're going to prick fingers. We are going to make mistakes. We're going to mispronounce names. We're going to not know the proper thing to say. We're going to reveal our ignorance, and maybe we're going to unintentionally hurt some feelings. And maybe we'll think we've made some sort of mistake in, in trying to learn from each other, but it is not a mistake. Whatever background you come from, no matter what language you speak, Jesus Christ is calling you to be fully part of His body, fully engaged, because what you contribute is indispensable to our learning more and more about our great God and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 shows us that God's grand design is not just that people of all backgrounds would worship under the same roof, but that Jesus Christ calls us to table fellowship with one another, sitting elbow to elbow with each other. The final verses of Amos give us a beautiful portrait of what the future world will be like for all those who answer the call of God and turn to Jesus Christ by faith. We have a picture in verses 13 to 15 of abundant crops and, futures and future fortunes restored, rebuilt homes, God's people never being uprooted again. What was lost to God's people in their judgment, God will restore to them again. And ultimately, what the end of Amos shows us is a picture of the new creation that Jesus Christ will bring when He returns. 
when Jesus returns, the beauty of God will be discovered in the unity and diversity from across creation, from across cultures, from across languages. It is in that diversity the knowledge of God is deepened. And all that God will do will cause us to rejoice in Him. We will feast in the house of Zion, is what we sang earlier. What a way to end a book filled with judgment. So much unsurpassed joy, so much unsurpassed promise. In the past weeks, we've seen that the book of Amos is really filled with terror and judgment, but we also see right at the end here, it is filled with great hope. In these word pictures, Amos shows us that the great rebuilding and flourishing of God's people will happen once again. And how amazing to know that each of us sinners, from no matter where we are from, will share in Israel's great hope through Jesus Christ. What a way to end. And what a privilege to be a part of. All that God is doing to rebuild His people from sea to sea. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, when we try to contain you or try to limit you, we fail to see that you are doing so much more than we can ask or imagine. Better things that we could even hope for. And we see that in this passage of Amos. Thank you for including us we who were far off, you have brought us near. Thank you that you encounter every person and every culture that they are in. That there is no barrier between you and the nations of the world. You are the Lord of all peoples. And we thank you for the special joy that we get to experience here in our church of bringing the nations together. Only you, Lord Jesus, can do this. And so, Lord, we pray that we would deepen our relationships with one another as your people, that we would take the risks of getting to know each other and know that it is your common lordship that unites us all and that each person, as they are, has much to contribute to this body. We are humbled and grateful that you have called us to be part of this rebuilding project. In your name we pray, amen.